Welcome to the K-Beauty Podcast, a love letter to all things K-Beauty, hosted by me, Sugar Peaches, from Sugar Peaches Loves, a German and English beauty blog dedicated to beauty products from around the world, with a special passion for Asian and indie brands. I'm back with a new episode of the K-Beauty Podcast. This one is less about Korean skincare products and more about, well, the business of blogging, I guess. So settle into your usual listening routine and get podcast ready for today's topic, or rather, today's question. Can we trust K-Beauty reviews? Ooh, controversial, isn't it? All right, let's get started then. Hey guys, it's good to be back as always. So I'm currently noticing how an episode schedule of every other week or twice a month works better for me and my perfectionism than trying desperately to make the weekly schedule happen. It takes me around three days to produce an episode, sometimes even four days, since I'm doing it all on my own. So it started to just be impossible to manage my blogging, my copywriting, my content creation on social media and an episode every week. Maybe one day I can go back to the weekly podcast, but for now I'd say expect an episode roughly every 14 days. I think it just makes more sense for me at this moment with as small an audience as I still have as well. to be honest. Yeah, it makes more sense and I'm sorry if that makes you sad. Now for today's episode, I decided to go for a topic that carries a certain controversial charge, shall we say. And I hope I won't step on anyone's toes with my views. I just felt that it was time to address this elephant in the room regarding my own work as a blogger and the work of bloggers in general. Sooner or later, you guys will probably want to know my views on this issue anyway, I would say. So the big question today is, can we, or rather you, trust key beauty reviews on social media? During this podcast episode, I will tell you my own views regarding paid sponsors sponsorships, collaborations, and blogging about so-called free products. And then dive into the actual question about whether or not K-Beauty reviews from bloggers and Instagrammers are trustworthy. I will also give you a few pointers on how to spot an inauthentic or fake review versus a trustworthy one. These pointers are of course my own opinion and are based on both my knowledge of the blogger world as well as my own stance as a consumer. Okay, let's go. First of all, I'm somewhat saddened that we even have to ask whether skincare reviews and makeup reviews can be trusted. I guess it shows what has become of the blogging slash influencer world, especially when it comes to the Asian beauty community, which used to be pretty, I would say, unpretentious and free of any sort of insta-famous influences. In general, I'm not as critical about influences as other people. For me, it's all about authenticity and honesty and ethical behavior, but more on that later. In general, The whole point of bloggers and personal blogs was to create authentic and less corporate voices about skincare and to find a platform for normal consumers to share their opinions. But, well, the blogging world has changed and as someone who is striving to be a full-time blogger, it's a big dream of mine. I'm definitely not as opposed to people making money of their blogging as others are. As I said, I'm even okay with the dreaded influencer word. I think it's fine depending on how you approach all of this. My blog, to be absolutely frank with you, was never just a hobby. I always did see it as a way to show what I can do. I wanted to be a writer for as long as I can remember. And writing about skincare professionally has been a dream of mine for a very, very long time. So I guess this is the first thing you need to know about my own views. Because I think it probably strongly influences how I view the controversy around sponsored content and bloggers working with brands. In and of itself, I do not find this problematic. I have done paid advertorials on my blog and I'm more than open to do more paid collaborations. However, and this is crucial here I would say, the how is what can make or break a collaboration in my eyes. First of all, and this is a big one, disclosing any paid for content as an ad is absolutely 100% a must. I have said no to numerous brands and PR firms that have asked me to do not disclose, to not let my readers 
readers know that I was paid to write about a certain product or service or shop. And I would never say yes to that. It's always a no for me. It doesn't even matter how much money they would offer. It doesn't matter. And it's always very, very sad to then see other bloggers work with these exact brands on the campaigns that were offered to me because I know that they are not honest when they pretend to just have discovered this product and they just authentically love it. And they might authentically love it, but they still need to disclose if they were paid to write an advertisement about it. And they don't. And I know it. It's very disheartening to see for me when this happens. Um, And I just find it very depressing because it adds to the overall idea about bloggers being dishonest. Because sometimes they are. Now, depending on your country of residence, you may or may not have rules and laws regarding sneaky or hidden advertising. Fun fact, this is called Schleichwerbung in German, which literally means sneaking advertising or tiptoeing advertising. I know both the UK and the US have rules that are meant to help consumers distinguish between advertising and someone who just really happens to like a product without receiving any compensation for this whatsoever. Here in Germany, we have these laws as well. Of course, there's a German regulation for everything. (laughs) Technically, they're very, very strict indeed. Again, as with most laws and rules in Germany. So, for instance, I always have to disclose if a product I'm showing on social media channels or on my blog has been sent to me by the brand. The way I do this is by disclosing it as PR sample. This is a term that most people understand by now, but just in case they are still confused, I always explain the term at the bottom of my blog post as well. In case you don't really know what a PR sample is and have always been a bit hesitant to ask because everyone just throws the term out there. Basically, it means a brand sends me their product or products to try out without me being obligated to show them on my channels. PR samples are also what usually big magazines receive. This gets sent out to people who hopefully then create a marketing and PR buzz around the topic by reporting on it. So, Of course, a brand hopes I will show the products and talk about them and report on them, but I have no direct obligation to do so in general. Of course, I usually do talk about it because it creates content for my readers. There's no point in hiding away samples I receive. So if I feel that the products might be interesting to my readers, I at the very least show them on my Instagram. I don't always blog about every sample I receive because sometimes I receive stuff that just doesn't really seem that exciting. A blog article takes me a good four to five hours to produce, if not more, so I want the topic to be worthwhile. But okay, back to disclosure rules in Germany regarding PR samples. So if products sent to a blogger are very expensive, I think there's actually a specific value even given in the rules, but I don't quite remember what it was. Something like 100 euros or 500 euros? I I genuinely don't remember, but it's a little bit higher than, say, getting a skincare toner from a Korean brand for $20. So if you get something really expensive, say mm, a MacBook, which would be amazing. Oh God, I wish wish Apple would send me PR. It would be awesome, but no. (laughs) But there has been a specific German blogger that I have in mind. A couple of years ago, she got into trouble because she got laptops for free and didn't then disclose that uh, partnership and blogged about it and showed it on her Instagram. And that was uh, voted as Schleichwerbung, so I think she had to pay a fine even from what I remember. But anyway, if I would receive a new MacBook and then show the MacBook on my social media channels or even blog about it, then I would have to highlight this as an ad because the financial value of the product is so high that you can't pretend anymore that it's oh just a brand sending you something in the hopes of you writing about it. There's a clear financial gain here and personal gain that is so strong that it is highly unlikely that it doesn't affect the way you write about it about it. Even if you still are very honest and ethically clean about this, it's clear that your excitement over the new MacBook will probably color what you write and that a form of strong financial gain will motivate you to write the post. So that 
would be an advertisement. And there are all sorts of these types of deals going on where technically you're not being paid in hard cash as an influencer or blogger, but you clearly are being compensated in a way that goes beyond a brand sending you the latest beauty launches from their brand or the limited edition for Christmas. There have been bloggers who have received new cars, washing machines. There was a YouTuber, German YouTuber got a washing machine and then had a YouTube video about it. But I think he got paid as well. But it was all very muddy and strange the way it was presented. So that's when we get into problematic territory. Or people who get their entire apartment furnished. They get a new kitchen. Things like that. I mean, you're getting thousands of euros of product. And you keep showing stuff from the new kitchen on your social media. That, of course, blurs the lines to a point where you absolutely should disclose this as an ad. Even if technically you can even always claim that you didn't receive a single euro in payment. Now, there is some confusion as to when exactly the quote-unquote free stuff and more on my views about product samples being free later that we write about mean we are basically just always advertising for a company automatically or if the sample is just a press sample that we treat as a means to write an honest, independent and informative review article. As I said, I myself am not always fully sure how to interpret certain regulations. Even real lawyers sometimes give contradictory information about these sorts of things. I just tend to strive to disclose everything in a way that my readers and followers can understand it and that there is no doubt about what's going on behind the scenes. But especially on Instagram, there are some very strange things going on at the moment. Uh, some bloggers are now even marking stuff that they have paid for themselves. So let's say they went to a drugstore and bought a new Nivea product and then they may take a picture of it and put it on Instagram. They will still mark this as an ad, even though the brand doesn't even know that they are doing this? It's so strange. I don't quite understand the reasoning behind that. Because if the brand doesn't pay you and you don't get any sort of monetary gain from it, how can it be an ad? I, I don't know. I don't know. I just feel if you mark everything as an ad, then it's just as confusing as when you mark nothing as an ad. But that's maybe just me and the laws might say something completely different and I'm the one in the wrong here. I hope not because I certainly want to do it right. But for me, the main thing is that it's always clear. When I have received something as PR and what PR even means and when I get paid. And speaking about getting paid, if you have been financially compensated for marketing a product or service on the net, then this is an ad. We shouldn't even have to discuss this because it's pretty clear. The brand paid you to take part in a blogging campaign campaign and create content connected to the brand or the product and thus it's an ad or a so-called advertorial and you will have to mark it as an ad and I think this is the truth for most countries from what I understand certainly for the UK certainly for the US. German law also requires you to always disclose any affiliate or referral links you use. I do this in the bottom of my blog posts and use a little asterisk on each affiliate link. The reason that I do it at the bottom is not in order to be sneaky or anything, but just because putting it in the front, it just looks kind of messy. I have to learn how to program my blog header in a way that I can maybe put it there. I've seen that with some blogging girls and I love that because I would prefer for it to be at the top of the page but just putting it in the text itself always looks messy and also messes up the um, search engine optimization. So I haven't found a perfect solution for this, but just to let you know, anyone who is listening, any of the links with an asterisk are usually affiliate links and what affiliate links are, I always explain it at the bottom of the blog post. Again, you may not know what an affiliate link is. Basically what it is, is it's a link that leads to a shop with which a blogger has a special arrangement. If you have a consumer, click that link and then buy the link product, the blogger receives a commission for the sale. It's usually something small like 4 to 7% 
unfortunately not much more than that. This does not change the price for the consumer. You don't even really notice that this is happening. It doesn't change anything for you as such. It has no impact on um, your buying the product whatsoever. And it's a great way to support your favorite bloggers. So using affiliate links from your favorite blogs will help those blogs sustain themselves financially. Then there are, of course, those coupon codes you often see, especially on Instagram. I myself have one from BeautyTab. Actually, I don't have my June coupon code yet, but usually I get one for each month um, for like 10 or 15% off for my readers and podcast listeners. These coupon codes basically work like affiliate links. If you use them to receive a discount or receive a special gift, the influencer blog or blogger receives a commission for the sale. And of course, the reason they are so popular on Instagram and for podcasts as well, if podcasts are um, doing ads, is because you can't really use links within a, a podcast, within the audio, and you can't really use links on Instagram posts. So it's a way for the company to still track uh, when people were being inspired, shall we say, to buy a product from a specific blogger when they use the coupon code. So it's just another tracking method. And you as a consumer get the benefit of the extra discount. Now, some people find affiliate links and especially those coupon codes shady because there are many larger influencers, especially on YouTube, who have turned into, shall we say, quite aggressive salespeople. They are constantly pushing their codes and and affiliate links and they st are starting to sound more like an over exuberant infomercial host versus a blogger who wants to do honest and authentic reviews and topical articles or videos on certain products. I use affiliate links to help support my freelancing business but I would never write positively about a product just to make sales. That's dishonest and I really believe that it will always bite you in the butt in the end. Because the thing is, consumers are not stupid. Most people who read blogs are very attuned to the blogger's real voice, so they usually know if he or she starts to become inauthentic. So not disclosing any paid sponsorships, any PR samples or affiliate links is not only against the laws of most countries, it also means a blogger or influencer is actively lying to their followers. Given that the relationship between readers or followers and bloggers is literally the only reason why any blogger even receives opportunities for paid or otherwise compensated work, I personally do not understand and will never understand why a blogger would ever risk this very unique and special and somewhat fragile relationship. No amount of money would be high enough for me to ever, ever be disappointed honest towards my readership. So the laws are one thing, but even when it comes to clearly disclosed paid content and paid brand collaborations, we still have a lot of people who are very negative towards that. Many people expect any blog article or social media post that is disclosed as an ad to automatically be dishonest. They see the word ad and they just shut, shut off completely. I do admit that the language used in a paid advertorial can sometimes significantly differ when compared to a non-paid blog post. You do usually agree to write in a way that informs about the product or service so that the readers get curious and excited about it. No brand wants you to write in a review or a, a sponsored content article and just say, oh, you know what, I tried this and it was just kind of meh. I'll be honest, that's probably not gonna happen, okay? However, I still would say that there is a lot of nuance when it comes to how a blogger tackles the somewhat, shall we say, charged realm of paid content. Now, I, of course, can only tell you how I approach a paid partnership with a brand. Now, first and foremost, the brand or product or service needs to be something that I personally would be excited about and interested in, irregardless of whether or not I'm being paid to promote this. This is always the crucial thing for me whenever I get an offer to do a paid collaboration or if I apply for a certain campaign. I always ask myself, 
is this even a product I would use in real life? Is this something I find exciting? And very often the answer is a very enthusiastic yes. And then I very happily start a paid collaboration. So just to give you an example, I did a paid sponsorship with a brand called Tescoma, where I presented their popsicle maker and created a couple of healthy popsicle recipes for it. I got super excited when I got the chance for this brand collaboration because it just so happened. It was really the weirdest coincidence ever that I had actually been super interested in finding healthier alternatives to curb my uh, addiction to Italian gelato, which is full of not so healthy sugars and fats. So I had been researching how to make my own popsicles for a really long time before that already and had been eyeing up on Amazon exactly that same popsicle maker, that very product that I was supposed to advertise. So I mean, it was just, I probably would have bought that thing anyway and would have created the recipes anyway. And even today, I still use this. I have a whole new batch of green tea, matcha, coconut water one. They're still in the fridge. In these cases, it really didn't make a difference. It was just a really fantastic bonus to get the chance to collaborate. But I would probably have written that article anyway, because it was a topic that was very much on my radar. The same is true for a paid sponsorship I did with a French skin care brand Mixer. They recently launched in Germany and since I already knew them from shopping in France and since everyone knows that I love French pharmacy skincare, it was really a match made in heaven. Mixer is a drugstore brand but they have the same French pharmacy background. I also once did a paid sponsorship for Zinc supplement and talked about my experiences taking it and whether or not it helped clear up my skin and possibly help with things such as I had problems sleeping. I still have, but I had to stop taking the zinc supplement because I couldn't afford the new package. But I would have probably continued taking it because it made such a difference. Seriously, guys, if you have problems with acne, you should consider getting a really good zinc supplement. Obviously, I'm not going to mention the brand here. There are hundreds of brands probably around in every country who offer good quality zinc. But uh, really, looking back on my skin from that year, I think that was 2015, it was noticeable clearer. It was really great actually. Damn, I should start taking that again. And I remember that the brief for that collaboration, for that zinc supplement, actually asked very explicitly to be honest and to not fake any results. And you had to take the supplement for a while before you're doing the article. I think it was almost a month before. So again, a very important criterion for me agreeing to do a paid collab is a natural or authentic connection to the brand or product and or a high interest in the product or the background of the brand. I mean, it could be a new brand approaching me that I've never tried out, but the more I learn about them, the more excited I get and would happily agree to test out their products. Now, the second most important thing to me is that I have control over what I write. Some brands try to have complete control over what you as a blogger write. So I always make sure that I explain beforehand that I will be the one to write the article and not the brand. And this is also the reason why I always say a very decisive uh, no thank you to any so-called guest articles offered by weird shady internet companies. I think a lot of bloggers get these from some really strange internet business that sells, I don't know, plastic surgery. And then they want you to copy and paste an article with a backlink to that company. Yeah, nah, not gonna happen. And just to make it clear, I don't mean guest articles from other bloggers on my blog. I would potentially be open to a blogger collaboration like that if it fits my blog theme. Would be quite cool to have some of the beauty bloggers that I myself read and love. For me to be able to write a blog post on their blog and for them to write on my blog, that would be lovely. Now, when it comes to trustworthy brands, my own experience is that the larger the brand and the more professional they are, the more relaxed they usually are about your request to write a fully independent article. In fact, a good brand collaboration usually involves you as a blogger being the one in control. I mean, this is what they hire you for, after all. For your 
authentic, unique writing style. They usually expect you to be the one who creates the unique content. So this idea that bloggers are just passive conduits in a brand collaboration and that they just copy whatever the brand dictates them is, from my own experience, usually not true. Now, the next really important thing to know that I make a strong habit of letting any brand know that is interested in working with me is that my opinion is not for sale. My services are, my writing absolutely but I'm not gonna change my opinion if I get paid for it and I guess this kind of connects back to criteria number one that I need a natural and authentic connection to the brand but I would say it goes a step further than just that I won't sell my opinion and I will not lie it in a paid article this is precisely why I choose very very carefully who I collaborate with and also probably the reason why I haven't done a paid advertorial on my blog for a while I have said no to quite a lot of things lately because I don't know what it is, but the offers have actually just gotten shadier and shadier instead of more professional lately. I, I don't know. I really don't know what that's about. If I feel the brand or the product might be something that I won't like, I would probably be very careful before I agree to a partnership. And if I do agree, I would make sure to check if I'm allowed to truly give my honest opinion. The same is, of course, true for receiving PR sound. This is actually, interestingly enough, when the most distrust seems to arise in the K-beauty community. This idea that we bloggers exchange positive reviews for quote-unquote free stuff. I keep reading on forums that people automatically distrust bloggers who write about a PR sample. So let's talk about PR samples a bit more here. This one is really important for me to address for a number of reasons. So just to remind you, a PR sample is basically a free product sample. It's usually full-sized, so the name sample, I guess, can be a bit misleading. And you receive it from a PR firm or a PR person from a brand. If it's a larger brand, they usually have their own PR department. They send you, as a blogger, some free product in the hopes that you will write about it or show it on your social media channels. Now some bloggers receive a lot of PR samples, whole packages full of them each week, so they're practically drowning in them. You you remember those massive unboxings from YouTube that are sometimes almost, shall we say, obscene because they have a whole room full of PR packages. That's obviously a moment where you as a consumer feel that there's something very shady going on. It's not shady. This is exactly the same volume of stuff that magazines and journalists receive, but it feels like more because you see them all unboxed at the same time. But anyway, back to what I actually want to talk about. It's important to know that not every PR sample sent to me or any other blogger is sent with us actively consenting to it being sent. I haven't really gotten any unexpected PR packages in a while, weirdly enough. I feel that I received more PR in my beginnings as a blogger than I do now. It's really strange, actually. I always thought it would be the other way around. I don't know what's going on there. Especially last year, I remember I often had parcels turn up without me even knowing who sent them or what was in them. You first have to open them and go, oh, this is interesting, but I have no idea what this is. And then you go, oh, how nice. It's a, what did I receive? A Redkin hair care package. I didn't even know they noticed me. And I'm not gonna lie, I quite like receiving these unexpected packages. It's just quite thrilling to see what's in them. Just something that does come with the job and it's certainly a nice part of the job. I'm never going to deny that fact. And you know, what I also really like about unexpected PR is that I feel the least pressure to write about these products. The brand just wants me to get to know the product. Of course, they secretly hope it will turn up, you know, in all those influencer and blogger profiles. Absolutely. Absolutely, but they won't harass you if you then don't write about it or get angry at you or instantly throw you off their PR list. Usually that actually doesn't happen that easily. I know quite a couple of girls here in Germany who have pretty much stopped blogging, but they will still receive really large PR packages because they seem to just get stuck on the PR lists of larger companies for a really long time. For bloggers who receive a lot of PR, I think it can get a bit overwhelming to constantly get mystery packages. So brands usually are careful about sending them anything without prior email contact and making sure that 
the blogger actually wants the product, except if you are a really large blogger and are just on every PR list, then I don't think you can even, shall we say, fight against constantly receiving those PR packages. They will reach you no matter what, because everyone is trying to get in on the whole influencer hype. It's just what happens. But I mean, we're talking about massive influencers with, you know, millions of followers. As smaller bloggers, certainly not as coveted, I would say in general. Now, some brands, and I would say it's usually the smaller or newer brands who have a smaller PR budget, they tend to email you first and ask if you want to quote-unquote collaborate with them. For them, the PR sample basically is a form of payment. They like to try and make sure that if they send you something, some of their precious product, you will write a blog post about the product in exchange. Now, I'm somewhat of two minds about this, to be honest, because the thing is, a PR sample is not a form of payment. I know, I know. Greedy bloggers and their free stuff, being ungrateful, blah, blah, blah. I get it. I get it that some people think about it that way. But I guess maybe it's because I used to be a bookseller. That's the first job I ever had. I worked in a bookstore for three years. It was quite a large bookstore. So a lot of publishers were very keen on bringing their products into our shop. This was pre-Amazon, mind you. This was also long before Amazon Kindle and other e-readers. And as a bookseller, you would receive quote-unquote free books on the regular simply so that you can read them and then hopefully decide to carry them in your shop. We would have a whole library of new book launches and we were encouraged to read them because as a bookseller, you also have to know what's out there on the market to then recommend those books to your customers, of course. So you get, again, quote-unquote free books because, of course, the publisher hopes that you will consider this book to be a possible potential bestseller and order 50 of those to then sell to your customers. But books, free books, again, I don't want to use free because they really aren't free as such. They are being sent also to journalists, of course, who write about books because, again, you want to make sure there is a buzz created around a product, be it a book or, again, a skincare product. It's just what happens in those creative industries. It's just what happens whenever a PR company tries to make a lot of people notice that there is a new product out there. And as I said before, women's magazines usually have so-called beauty or fashion closets. They literally receive all of the new beauty products, every single new beauty launch, if they're an important magazine. Freelance journalists and beauty editors will tell you that they get almost hounded by PR contacts trying to throw products at them in the hopes of exposure for their brands. Again, they probably won't pressure you to write about it or let alone write positively about it. They just are desperate to get noticed at all by anyone so that they will be featured in a publication that then can potentially reach millions of people. It's really all just part and parcel of the business and no one bats an eyelid at it or gets angry at beauty editors or fashion editors because they are greedy and have all that free stuff. They most certainly won't see it as free stuff. It's just a tool for them to do their work. No beauty editor would work for a Chanel cream. They still get paid. This The Chanel cream is not their payment. But of course, I should remain critical and also, of course, add that technically, I guess they do get paid by the brands because advertisements in magazines are what pays the salaries of the magazine employees. So there's always a certain gray area, I guess, ethical gray area when it comes to beauty and fashion content in magazines. Let's face it, that's why bloggers started to appear because people started mistrusting magazines as an unbiased source of news about beauty and fashion. But I would say that my point still stands that no one who takes their work as a writer seriously would sell their soul or their opinion just for a free product, even if it's a beautiful high-end, I don't know, the history of woo eye cream. So of course I am grateful for all PR samples. I really, really am. I do not take them for granted at all. They are 
privilege that means I can write about products I may otherwise not be able to try out because I do not have the money for a $30 cream. I just don't at the moment. But PR samples don't pay my bills and they also don't compensate me for the hours and hours it takes me to produce a good quality blog article. Again, a blog article including images, well-researched content and carefully formulated search engine optimized writing can easily take four to six hours of work for me. So if I write about, say, a $20 Claire's toner, this would mean an hourly rate of $5 to $3.33. And and um, yeah, well, I also doubt that my landlord or my electricity company will accept payment in toners and essences and eye creams sadly. Now, you can, of course, easily argue that for most people, blogging is just a hobby, right? And that's true, of course, but it still takes you those hours of work and you're still producing content that helps a brand. So you are still working for free, whether blogging is your job or not. And someone else still profits off of your work, whether, again, you just wrote it for the sheer joy of it or because someone paid you to write it. I mean, it's absolutely your choice to do so, to work for free, basically. I do, however, really, really wish some bloggers would stop underselling themselves and giving brands everything for free because it makes life very difficult for professional content creators, not just bloggers, but also photographers, web designers, consultants, all sorts of people in the industry who rely on clients actually paying them. So many hobby photographers, Instagrammers, bloggers end up on brand profiles and social media accounts and they receive nothing in return while the brand profits immensely from the free images and articles about their products. We should not forget that. I used to be in a Facebook group with creative professionals who use Instagram and many of them said it is becoming harder and harder to be hired by brands because the brand will just say, oh well, you know what, I'll just ask a few people on Instagram. They just provide the images for free. They are happy to do it. It's fine. We don't need a professional photographer wants us to actually pay him for his work. And I myself have found one particular image of mine. It shows the Claire's vitamin E mask. It was featured on the Claire's Instagram profile once. And I think a lot of people thought that it was a Claire's picture, even though they did credit me. So this one just keeps making the rounds. And the way it is used is a lot of smaller K-beauty shops just use it and then link to their shop from my image. So they use my my image to make a profit to sell their product. And I'm sorry, I'm not okay with that. If you read my blog, you probably know that I often do blog about PR samples and review products and I don't get paid for it. As I said, for me, a PR sample is a wonderful way to produce new and interesting content and I get to know new products that I then can introduce to you guys. So I'm definitely not opposed to blog about something without payment, obviously. It's important for me to have a wide range of blog posts and to be able to blog regularly despite having a very small skincare budget at the moment. It just prevents me from making any massive purchases. I could never just buy the latest limited edition of a makeup brand. It's it's impossible for me. And seen from that perspective, I actually think that PR samples can be a wonderful equalizer. I do think that blogging full-time is still very often a very privileged job that you kind of need to already have money for in order to really make it work very quickly. It's much easier when you have a large budget to buy things. But if everyone gets the same PR samples, then everyone gets a chance to report on them. I actually think that's a good thing, personally. If I really love a product that I receive as a sample, chances are pretty high that I will blog about it, irregardless of how much the product is worth or whether or not I'm being paid for an article. I mean, that's why I started blogging, because I wanted to talk about great and exciting makeup and skincare products. I also have a soft spot for brands that are indie, niche or have just something unique and interesting about them. So when they approach me, I must admit I tend to be more generous and usually be okay with quote-unquote just product. Again, only if I can get excited about this stuff. So it is kind of an individual decision when it comes to blogging about PR samples or promising a blog article beforehand 
land in exchange for a PR sample. Most bloggers, me included, have a fixed blogging schedule, so they plan ahead for the month or even for a couple of months. Ideally, your blog will contain a mix of paid-for editorials and quote-unquote free articles. So articles that aren't paid-for editorials, you may or may not feature PR samples in them, but no one pays you to feature any products in those articles. Here's the question. Are reviews about products that bloggers have bought with their own money really automatically more honest? Most people seem to think they are, and I can't kind of understand where they are coming from. It does seem that you are less biased when you've paid for the product yourself. You've invested your own money, so you will be, I guess, tougher on the product. I think that is the reasoning behind that. And there's always this idea that if we are on a brand PR list, we are so keen to stay on that PR list that we would never offend a brand. Again, I just want to say that I don't really believe in that. Some bloggers really are like that, but then there are a lot of bloggers who are very honest and authentic and who don't have a problem not receiving any more PR because again their relationship with their readers and their readers being able to rely on their authenticity is more important to them. As with all things blogging the answer to whether or not product reviews where the blogger has bought the products are more honest is a lot more nuanced and complex I think with far more shades of grey than clear black and white distinctions. For instance I have heard from blogging girls who do a lot of drugstore reviews here in June that what a lot of them do is, uh, well, they buy the products, they do with their own money, mostly limited editions, makeup products, then they take them home with them and they take pictures of them and then they return them and they have never really used them. If they're very clever, apparently there are also ways to use it once for swatching and still make it look as if they haven't been used. Or I think one girl even said, apparently sometimes they take it back when it is used. If you just say, I didn't do well with it or my skin broke out or something. I don't know how they do it. I've never, I don't think I've ever returned a used product, but I guess if you are brash enough, you can probably get people to exchange anything for you. But yeah, that's what I've heard. Because I once asked a girl how she actually manages to always have the newest stuff and she must have just so much stuff lying around at home if she buys all the limited editions. And she was like, girl, let me tell you how it works. <laughs> Obviously, I won't name her clearly, but yeah. I was, I must admit, I was pretty shocked. And the question is, of course, is this more honest? Is this really a more thorough review? If you just use it once and then return it and basically mostly just take pictures to make it appear as if you have used it. There are a lot of bloggers who have a lot of money. They will buy many, many products. Again, use them once, swatch them or show the cream jar on their Instagram. They might even pretend that they have emptied the package, but but they haven't. They just dunked it and then wrote a review pretending they used it. Is this more honest just because it was bought? I don't think so. Very often when a product is buzzed about on social media and a lot of people search for it on Google, so it goes up on Google Trends, influencers will flock to it because it guarantees them good search results if they are lucky and potential new followers. They don't write about it or YouTube about it and they certainly don't buy it because they love it or are genuinely interested in it, they do it for the potential exposure. Many times it's also because they hope brands will notice them and then get in touch with them and then they will end up on the PR list. I have heard this in fact as a tip from a number of so-called consultants for new bloggers that they should go out and buy products from brands they want to work with in the future to then attract the brand sponsorship. Seriously guys, please don't do that. Please don't put yourself in debt in the hopes that a brand will one day maybe work with you just because you tag them on your Instagram post. This whole desperate attention for brand exposure to me is very uncomfortable. I think that it is also often exploited by brands, which I've said before. They then use the content for free and they even manage to sell a product, but they certainly won't ever pay that person. This is why I say we should be more careful with the free labor and free content we give out to these brands. They profit from our desperate hopes to one day, one day, 
make it big as a blogger. And well, going back to the question about trustworthy reviews, even if a blogger has bought a product, if he or she just wants the clicks and also possibly yearns to be noticed by brand senpai, how likely is it that the product will then be reviewed fairly? I have seen people trash a makeup palette just because it will make their review be controversial and because controversial negative reviews are a surefire thing to now be seen by a lot of people and shared. As long as something is controversial, especially on YouTube, the algorithm will push it forward as a trending topic. So again, can we trust this? It sounds honest and it sounds like someone's trashing a product, but I sometimes feel they just do it for the attention. And that again is not very useful, I think, to the viewers or readers. And I think we have to be careful about equating honesty with being purposefully negative. You can write an honest review and say that you love something. And then of course there's also the case where yes the blogger has bought the product but then maybe uses affiliate links and then maybe he or she will give a good review because he wants you to buy the product so that he or she makes money off the commission from the affiliate links. So Yeah, it's all a little bit more complicated than it looks, right? But sugar peaches, you may say now, are you trying to imply that PR samples or free stuff does not influence a blogger's opinion at all? No. Of course, I'm not saying that. I mean, I wish, right? Guys, I'm definitely not pretending that all bloggers are beacons of ethical journalism and that no blogger is ever swayed by the promise of free products. I have seen grown women fight over a Garnier wash-off mask sample that probably retails, I think, for something like $2 in a Facebook group. And I have seen these women write reviews that were entirely too unprofessional and certainly too, shall we say, brand-pleasing for my tastes, considering that I tried that mask because I bought it, because even my small budget can afford that type of mask. And it was not a good mask, objectively so in that case. Many bloggers are fearful that a negative review will get them thrown off PR lists. It's true. But... And this may just be my personal experience. Most bloggers who take their job seriously as a blogger and as a writer and as a content creator will most definitely not sell out for a skincare product or a two or a whole box of it. And no, they probably wouldn't even sell their soul for a free car or a free MacBook. The thing is, and that is my honest to God opinion on this matter, honest people will always be honest, even in the face of tempting PR samples and even magnificent PR trips. And those PR trips, of course, are a whole other subject that I personally can't say much about because I've never been invited to any. I haven't even been to many blogger events, to be honest, sadly enough. I certainly wouldn't say no to them, but I can understand why they are also somewhat controversial. But again, I don't think that an ethical person would be swayed by being flown off to Bora Bora. I really don't think that. And I also believe that dishonest and shady, unethical people who only do blog as a means to gain influence in free stuff will always be shady. I don't think the free stuff itself makes them shady. I think they already were approached blogging from a position of, well, greed and a desire to be, I guess, famous or, I don't know, just get things and money. And by the way, this needs to be added here as well. I have seen both so-called hobby bloggers and full-time bloggers be both super shady and also super ethical and wonderful. This also does not, in my opinion, influence the integrity of a blogger, whether or not this person does it as a full-time job or as a hobby. If your ethics are already shaky, whether you realize it or not, because some people, I think, consider themselves good people when they really aren't. Again, that's probably another subject entirely. You will then always find a way to exploit your readers and probably not be honest in your writing and in your intentions with your blog. And if you are aware of the importance of authenticity and honesty in your writing, you won't let a brand basically bribe you into writing positively about the product. And really, most brands aren't nearly as shady and horrible and manipulative as you may make them out to be. If a brand is truly professional, 
professional and truly believes in their products, they will allow you to give your opinion, even if it is maybe not just a complete rave. And this is another thing about reviews. Nuance is the key here. A truly good review or blog article about a particular topic, say, well, the 10-step skincare routine, will offer up both positives and negatives, or put positives and negatives into context so that it offers maximum benefit for the readers. I also want to stress here that just because a blog review is highly positive, I don't think this automatically has to mean the blogger was secretly influenced by the brand to write this. I personally have written quite a few blog posts that basically read like love letters to a certain brand or a certain product. You have heard me talk about, for instance, Claire's Oligi Harm, and it sounds as if I'm talking about a lover. Let's face it, my relationship, especially with Ligi Harm, has become almost absurdly romantic. <laughs> but I think this is just kind of my personality. I write in exuberant superlatives with a bit of an ironic wink and I hope everyone can see that. It's just who I am and have always been. My friends often call me the queen of superlatives because I tend to just go into the highest possible praise when I like something. So I will not just say that I liked a Korean drama, I will probably declare it the most amazing thing I've ever watched in my entire life. So I guess this is the question of the day then. How can you actually tell if a review is genuine or not? I have collected a couple of pointers to help you decide whether or not a product review on a blog or on Instagram can be trusted. All right, let's get into it. First of all, if the blogger is new to you, check out their other writing or their other Instagram posts. As I said, most bloggers have a very distinct voice and especially good bloggers who put a great emphasis on providing well-written content will write in a way that feels very authentic and real. Whether they love something or feel just kind of meh about it, you will have a sense of whether or not they mean what they are writing there. So if you've read a couple of their posts, you will start to notice if they just basically write the same. This is a great product because it's great and it feels great and it sinks into the skin because it's great and it smells great. Cliched phrases, although I have written about something sinking into the skin, so um, I guess I tend towards cliches myself. I just noticed that. A, a sort of lack of diversity in phrasing and a certain, I guess, superficiality when talking about a product and that is different reviews. If that is the case, instead of them truly telling you something about the product, something unique and distinct in each of their reviews, then they're probably at the very least not very thorough in their writing and reviewing. I noticed this with a couple of influencers, especially in the K-beauty YouTube community. They never really seem to actually tell you what a product does. It always baffles me how they can call themselves skincare experts and then all they keep saying is that the product is great or that it feels great or that the packaging is nice. Sure, these points might play a role. I am a sucker for good packaging, that's for sure, but you need to give me a little bit more. And I feel that if the review is about makeup, then I need to know how well it lasted on the skin, how well you can work with the product, etc, etc. Just saying something is good or feels nice and not much else, makes me often think the reviewer didn't fully test the product and is just making it up as they go along to just have the words there in order to, you know, have done their duty. And I would say this is also where you can usually sniff out those people who only block for the freebies, if you can call them that. If they just fulfill the bare minimum of writing and throw in two or three images, then they probably aren't that committed to blogging and to content creation. They just want to try out stuff for free and kind of keep the gravy train running with a bare minimum of work. Of course, any glaring typos, bad writing, and especially repetitiveness are all indications of someone who probably doesn't put much effort into their articles. A good review will tell you what the product does, how to use it, what the ingredients are. Even if it's just a short ingredient overview, I don't always expect an in-depth, has to know every ingredient sort of super science-based discussion. I myself am not able to fulfill that at all. But at the very least, talk about what the ingredient that the product or the brand itself is advertising can or cannot do for someone 
someone. I think this is especially important for K-beauty review because not everyone knows what Centella Asiatica is or Propolis or Snail or any of this. And I mean, Snail products are a good example because a lot of people who don't know that much about K-beauty then just write that it's kind of gooey and sticky, but it feels nice on the skin. Yeah. I don't think that is very useful for people. I just expect a bit more. While I'm talking about this, I keep thinking that I probably have done all of the things I'm now talking about. So, <laughs> oh dear, exposing myself <laughs> to possible criticism. I just think it's always nice to give a bit of context for not just the product, but again, the ingredients and maybe even talk a little bit about the brand and what it's well known for. Again, I think especially helpful if it's a K-beauty review because we don't don't know all of the brands and also I think what is really crucial is making sure that people know what the blogger's skin type is. I always try to remember to mention my skin type when I talk about products or when I talk about my skincare routine because I think it's crucial for the readers to be able to put into context what a product does for me personally. What's the use of me reviewing say a thick oil balm and then say it's a bad product because something like that would probably be break me out. I don't need these types of products because I have oily combo skin and these really thick balm-like creams potentially will break me out and I, I just don't need that much heavy nourishing moisture. If something breaks me out, I usually make sure to also add why I think that is. It could be a certain ingredient I reacted to, which is a very personal sensitivity that might mean it's not because the product is bad, but rather because I just didn't get along with it. A good example here is, for instance, the iUnique Hyaluronic Acid Vitalizing Toner. It's super popular in the Asian beauty community. Lots of people put it as their favorite product, their favorite toner for last year and this year, but it broke me out. I think it's just too rich for my skin type. I think it really works better for drier skin types. Another thing that I would say is always revealing when it comes to the quality and authenticity of of a blog review is whether or not the language the blogger uses sounds suspiciously similar to what the brand itself writes on their social media or on their product pages and web shops. As someone who reads a lot of PR texts about products, I can now always tell when a blogger basically just copies the PR brief or the product texts you can find on shop sites or brand homepages. And there are actually bloggers who just copy and paste that, which I always find pretty shocking because didn't you start a blog because you were interested in writing your own articles? Anyway, there is a very distinct way to write about products that just screams flowery marketing language. So watch out for language that, that doesn't sound like what a blogger or Instagrammer would usually write. Say something like, this photogenic miracle treatment will brighten skin thanks to a patented triple botanical complex. I just totally made that up. This wasn't the quote. I just randomly strung together super marketing-y, pseudo-sciencey words, basically. So I hope you understand what I mean. These types of empty marketing phrases that just ramble on about what supposedly makes a product amazing without the blogger ever stepping back from that language and examining what it actually might mean. So someone who just parrots whatever the brand wrote without putting their own spin on it and at the very least unpacking those marketing phrases. So what does photogenic actually mean? What's a triple botanical complex? Things like that. So to sum this up, because it's or getting a bit long and I apologize for that. You should look for an authentic, personal and in-depth style of writing for someone who seems to really have taken the time to get to know the brand and the products and someone who pays attention to what the products are supposed to do and what they then actually do. In my mind, if the blogger is authentic, honest and well-researched, then I really don't think it matters if he or she received any PR samples. They will write about both the PR samples and the stuff they bought themselves in an equally helpful and constructive, informative manner. But I also do think it's always important to stay critical and to always be on guard. Even bloggers that you trust blindly, you will notice when something is off. And then I would say do trust your intuition. But also don't constantly blindly accuse people of being dishonest just because they do genuinely like a product. And that is really all there is to say on that. 
that highly controversial topic. Here are the weekly faves, craves and misbehaves. Yes, we're at that point in the podcast again. The weekly craves, faves and misbehaves. So one product that I'm really, really dying to try out, one product that I have tried out and really liked, and one product that unfortunately I wasn't that much of a fan of. So the crave of the week is the Blanc Douce, or is it Blanc Douce? No, Blanc Douce, Oligo Hyaluronic Acid 5000 Toner. I saw this toner in a video by the amazing, amazing Korean beauty editor, Director Pai. If you don't follow her yet on YouTube, you absolutely need to change that, especially now that she finally has allowed people to put English subtitles under her videos. Praise the Lord. Director Pai is a super influential, super knowledgeable beauty editor who does very thorough and well-researched videos. She is so knowledgeable, especially about skincare ingredients. It's crazy. The video I watched was, I think, about the best toners for 2018. And that Blanc Douce toner was one of her top picks. So obviously I had to instantly research it. The reason why I'm so keen on this toner is the fact that it uses low molecular hyaluronic acid. And this is quite rare to find, especially at such a good price. And the toner only Details for, I think it was something like $15. Most hyaluronic acid toners and other products use hyaluronic acid of a larger molecular size, since from what I understand, it's apparently just a cheaper raw material that way. But the thing is that hyaluronic acid molecules of a larger size cannot actually penetrate the skin barrier. You can actually feel this when you use certain toners high in hyaluronic acid, such as that Ionique toner I talked about, and I think the Isentree one is the same. They kind of sort of do mostly stay on the skin and they never seem to fully sink into the skin. It takes a very long time until you have a feeling that there isn't any sticky residue left anymore. Now, these types of toners can still be moisturizing and they usually create a nice sort of glass skin glow. But in order to really help plump up skin and balance out loss of hyaluronic acid, due to aging in the skin, we need products with a lower molecular size of hyaluronic acid. So yeah, I'm massively intrigued by this toner and by the brand Blanc Douce. They also have a heavenly sounding Pinot Noir Wine Mist Serum. I'm totally eyeing that one up now. So I think this is definitely a key beauty brand to watch for the future. And as always, I'll make sure to link the mentioned products in my episode notes for this podcast episode. Now the Fave of the week is the eNature Sika Herb Restore Sheet Mask. Now, last episode, I picked an eNature product as misbehave of the week. The squeeze green watery gel cream. This did not work for me at all. And again, it was a PR sample. I'm still telling you my honest opinion. However, the Sika Herb Restore Sheet Mask really impressed me. First of all, the material of the sheet is biodegradable, which I think is awesome. I really like that eco conscious aspect of the brand e-nature. Secondly, the material is super soft and very thin and the fit and feel of the mask on the skin was so comfortable. One of the most comfortable masks I've ever tried. And while it also happens to make my skin look fabulous. After I used the Sika Herb Restore Mask, my face looked noticeably brighter and the skin seemed so glowy and it looked and felt much smoother and softer. It's also a very soothing mask that is wonderful after a hot summer's day, which I did try out before the weather got really shitty again. It does have Centella Asiatica extract in it, so that's one of basically my favorite K-Beauty ingredients. And it is known to help inflamed or red skin. So again, it's great if you had a little bit too much sun exposure or if your skin just feels very flushed. So I can highly, highly recommend this mask if you have sensitive, easily inflamed or flushed, redness-prone skin. It's a lovely mask. Now, the misbehave of the week. Okay, this product isn't a K-Beauty product as such, but it's kind of trying to ride the wave of a K-Beauty 
beauty product trend. So I think it still kind of fits with the whole K-beauty Asian beauty theme. And I am talking about the L'Oreal Total Repair 5 Sika Hair Balm. I don't actually know if this product is even out in the States yet. Here in Germany, it is still quite new. L'Oreal is totally going for the whole Sika trend and uses Centella Asiatica, both in a couple of skincare products as well as new hair products. I have been on the hunt for a great hair balm for my super frizzy and very thick, slightly curly hair, but so far I haven't really found anything that has blown me away, unfortunately. I liked the idea of the L'Oreal Sika Balm because it sounded like a very nourishing but not too heavy anti-frizz balm, so it was just what I needed. But the sad thing is that <laughs> this just made my hair go very oily very fast, which it usually doesn't. I don't tend to be oily, I tend to be on the dry side. At first I thought it was maybe a hormonal issue because I do get a more oily scalp right before I get my period. But whenever I use this throughout a month, my hair would just become super limp and it would look oily almost by the next day. So very noticeably connected to the product. Unfortunately, since as I said, I'm not even someone who gets oily hair or an oily scalp, I feel that this product is probably on suited for most hair types and I just don't feel it does much for the hair in terms of providing nourishment or taming frizz at all. It just yeah I, I just really wasn't a fan. It costs almost six euros as well so it's not even that cheap and all in all I would classify this sadly as an actual flop product. So yeah, there we are. My thoughts on the question, can we trust K-beauty reviews or any beauty reviews for that matter? If you now feel deeply curious about my own reviews, you can check out my beauty blog at sugarpeacheslovesnet. Apart from a growing number of English K-beauty reviews, you can also find this week's podcast episode notes on the blog with all the products and any other links mentioned today. And I think I only have the crave faves and misbehaves. I don't think I mentioned many other products. That's a first. You can of course also follow me on Twitter. My handle is at sugarpeachliebe and the podcast's Twitter account is at kbeautypodcast. Naturally, I'm also on Instagram and my handle there is at sugarpeachesloves. You can find the kbeauty podcast on iTunes, which is still the best way for you to receive the latest episodes when they are freshly released. Apart from iTunes, you can also listen to this and any other The K-Beauty Podcast episodes on my blog or on SoundCloud, where a small like or a comment helps me and my little project here very, very much. If you feel this podcast is helpful to you in any way, please share it with people who you think may also find it useful. This is so important for us content creators since it supports our growth and our reach. Most people still seem to be completely unaware that this podcast exists and sometimes that makes me a little bit sad. I'm not gonna lie. Reviewing and rating this podcast on iTunes is the best way to support me and my work. Since the more positive reviews a podcast gets, the more likely it will be found by other listeners. If you want to further support my work, please consider using the affiliate links provided in the podcast episode notes and also in my blog articles whenever you make your K-Beauty purchases. This is obviously completely optional and up to you, clearly. Thank you to everyone who has shown me some love through messages, sharing my content and reviewing this podcast or contacting me on Instagram or on my blog. I appreciate this more than you'll ever know, which is why I say it in every episode because it's still true. It means the world to me. If you have any questions, queries, topic suggestions or if you are a brand and are interested in working with me, you can email me at sugarpeachesloves at gmail.com. I hope you will continue to believe that there are some honest bloggers out there, even if they get paid for their work or receive free products or even a free car or MacBook. Seriously, hit me up, Apple. Just joking. I know they don't give up PR, I guess. I don't even know if they do. I really don't. <laughs> and I love my little MacBook. It's fine. It's six years old. It's 
it's still working, it's still going strong. I understand that you are maybe mistrusting at this point of the beauty blogging community. The mistrust is often warranted, to be honest, but I feel it shouldn't turn into a complete rejection of every blogger out there, especially in the K-beauty community. There are some truly good people out there. So please keep reading, keep listening, keep being engaged with us. And until then, happy masking, layering and pat pat patting. Bye guys, take care and thank you. Thank you for your trust.